It happened between second and third grade that I actually transferred elementary schools. Now, as life-shattering as that is for a seven or eight-year-old, when I said goodbye to all two of my friends, I never was the same again. I could argue right now I've never, I've never been the same ever since I was seven or eight. I was forced to say goodbye. I was forced to transfer because my dad got a job as the PE teacher of this other elementary school. Now, if you happen to be part of the lucky ones whose parents worked in the school system that you were a part of growing up, you can empathize in a real way what I'm about to say. I apparently wasn't a normal kid. No, I was coach's son. And as coach's son, there were different expectations of me. I, simply for who I was, was posited a different standard than normal kids. My last name on the attendance sheet was actually a target right here on my forehead. And the worst of it was not that my name was on the sheet. The worst of it was this. I looked just like my dad. And in some ways, I acted like him. In some ways, I act like him now. That's the worst of it. I couldn't stand in line without someone stopping and, hey, are you, are you coach's son? You look just like your dad. Yeah, what well, gave it away? My face or what I said? You look just like your dad, Caleb. And it only increased as I got older. When I was well into my teens, even now as a young adult, people still look at pictures of me and they say, man, you look just like your dad. Or it'll show up in mannerisms, which inevitably my wife can tell you have already shown up this morning. It's happening from my sons to me. Compare their baby pictures with my baby pictures, and you might say, man, you boys look just like your dad. Or... Just watch how they act, and you guys would be like, yeah, those are Caleb's kids. Those are Caleb's kids. To look like our fathers. For some, that's the utmost of compliments. And admittedly, for others, it only breeds heartache and pain. But my desire this morning isn't to reflect on whether or not you look like your earthly father, Our resemblance to our earthly fathers is not what the Apostle John has in mind. He's not concerned with that. His concern, more importantly, is whether or not we resemble the Father, the God who he has said is light. Because if we really are his children, shouldn't we look like him? This morning we're continuing in our mini-series through 1 John with 1 John chapter 3. If you're using a blue pew Bible, you can find that under your chair or in the chair in front of you. You can find that on page 1022. And as you might recall, the purpose of John's first letter is for those who believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to know that they have eternal life. That's 1 John 5, verse 13. And as we've seen over the past couple sermons, in chapter 1, John defined what true fellowship with God looks like in someone's life. In chapter 2, he gave four exhortations. Remember the true Christ, obey his commandments, recognize the Antichrist, and abide. Abide in the message they've heard from the beginning and the anointing they received from Christ, namely the Holy Spirit. This command to abide serves as the subject of chapter 3. And I believe this is the key that unlocks the meaning of 1 John as a whole because the purpose of 1 John, after all, is so that the Christian can have assurance of eternal life. Well, if you are a child of God, you have eternal life. So it goes. But how do you know you're a child of God? Let's read 1 John 3. I'm going to start in chapter 2, verse 28 for context. And now, little children... Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 
Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you've never been told, I would like to inform you this morning that you look like your father. You look like your father. Whether you see it or not, you cannot escape the fact that you are your father's child. And depending on who your father is, you will inevitably look and act a certain way. The important question then is who is your father? As the apostle has done before, so now in our text, he continues presenting to us two options. This or that. You are either a child of God or you are a child of the devil. So there are three ideas I wish for us to consider this morning. And the first one, the main one, will take most of our time, is this. Our status as children. Let's consider our status as children. Very early in our text, the apostle is boldly affirming the reality that we are children of God. Verses 1 through 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. If you're a Christian with us this morning, hear the words of the apostle, and I pray that it brings you joy this morning. You are a child of God. What a greater gift than to know we possess the status of a child, God's child, the child of the living triune God. But that's just the summary, church. That's the summary statement. To say you are a child of God is to say a whole lot more than to just simply express a relationship that you have with God. The apostle does this repeatedly in 1 John. He gives a summary phrase 
and expects the reader to import all the prior understanding into that phrase. For example, look at verse 23. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another. You and I can quickly recognize it's not just about believing that Jesus was his name and then we just go and we love people. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. Based on everything the apostle has said up to this point, we know now as good readers, we now should import all that information into what he's saying right here. All of its significance right here. What who Jesus is, why it's important who he is, what it is that he did for us, why we should even believe in his name, what belief looks like, why his name is significant. And then with regards to love, we do the same thing. What is love? How do we love? What does love look like? Why should I love? We import all that information into this statement. John doesn't explain it all again. He expects us as his readers to recognize it's a loaded phrase and remember the background information. So with verse 1, in the beginning of verse 2, for you and I to experience the full assurance of this statement. There are actually three things the apostle expected you and I to remember when we read this. Here's the first one. We were once not children of God. He wants you to remember you were once not a child of God. It was when we heard and believed the gospel message That was from the beginning, about the Lord, about Jesus Christ, when God made us his children. Which means before then, we were all once children of the devil. The Apostle Paul expresses this clearly in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince, the devil, of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Human beings are not naturally children of God. We are naturally children of wrath. Because we actually follow the devil. We live for our own passions and desires like he does. And those passions and desires are only bent inwardly. We naturally idolize ourselves. We make ourselves to be God. And that is how human nature has been ever since the first father, Adam, sinned against God in the garden. He did what was right in his own eyes. He made himself out to be God following the serpent's lead. He disregarded God's commandments. And what happened? He sinned against God. Our human nature is what we call depraved. That means it's wicked. It's corrupt. It's perverted from how God intended it to be, which was good. And now to continually sinning against God, doing that which is evil, which in verse 8 of our text we see the devil has been doing from the beginning. It is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Knowing that we were once not God's children makes being a child of God now that much more beautiful. At one time, we didn't have a spot at the Lord's table. At one time, we walked in darkness like our father the devil had been doing from the beginning. At one time, We were lovers of the world and we did not know God, but God loved us and he gave us that love. Which is the second thing we should have remembered. God loved us by sending Jesus. We will actually see this next week, 1 John 4, verse 10 and 19. It's not on the screen, I'll say it. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love because he first loved us. So what does this love look like? John, or 1 John 3, 16, right here. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Or to put it another way, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. That means 
when we were children of the devil, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we had no love for God, that's when God showed us his love. So back to Ephesians 2, the remaining of the the section here. Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Do you know this love? Have you been thinking about whether or not you're a child of God or a child of the devil? The place to start to answer that question is with Jesus. Not how good you think you are or we are. Not with how good we think our works are, or even worse, not by comparing ourselves to others for better or for worse. That's not where we start. We start with Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Do you believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ? Do you believe that God so loved the world that he gave his Son so that if you would believe in the Son, you would not perish but have eternal life? Well, why would I perish? Why would I perish? You might ask that. Because by nature, we are children of wrath. We have all sinned against God, the living God. And sin against God, hear me, cannot, it must not, and it will never go unpunished because of who God is. God is holy. Look at verse 3. It says he is pure, meaning he is righteous. And for a righteous God to allow your wickedness to go unpunished is actually contrary to his nature. He would not be God if he looked at our sin and said, eh, it's okay. You tried your best. Either you will pay the eternal penalty for your sin. You will perish, according to this text. Or, by faith, you confess your sins to God, and our faithful God will forgive you and cleanse you of all that sin by the blood of our Lord Jesus. Amen. That's what Jesus was sent to do. Look at verse 5. Christ, why did Christ appear? Christ appeared to take away sins. And in him there is no sin, which means because he has no sin, he can take it away. He can take our sins away. And furthermore, look at verse 8. Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil. That's all unrighteousness, destroying all unrighteousness, and all those who make a practice of it because they are children of the devil, children of wrath. Your status as a child matters because if you are a child of the devil, the devil's end is your end. The devil's fate is your fate. So friend, if you have not yet come to Christ, I'm pleading with you, come to him. As the great Charles Spurgeon says in verse 23, so I now repeat his exact words, sinner, Whomever you may be, God now commands you to believe in Jesus Christ. This is his commandment. He does not command you to feel anything or be anything. You cannot say, I have no right. You have a perfect right to do what God tells you to do. You cannot tell me you are not fit. There is no fitness needed. The command is given and it is yours to obey. Do not dispute. Come to Jesus and be cleansed. There is hope offered in him and that's the third thing we ought to have remembered when we read this jesus alone is our hope it's only in christ we can be made children of god be made children of god but that itself that itself knowing that we are made children of god in jesus that itself it gives us assurance of the past the present and the future with the past We know now that our sins have been forgiven for his name's sake, fully and finally. We know Jesus, and he knows us. And we've overcome the devil because Jesus has overcome the devil. And with the present, 
As we see in 1 John 3, as children of God, we have been given the Spirit. We can practice righteousness. We can be pure. We can love one another by His power working through us, whereas before, we were unable to do these things because we were sinful by nature. And for the future. For the future. Verse 2 points us to our hope of future glory. That for one, Christ will return. That's a promise. And not only that, when he does return for us, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. He will make us new. He'll cleanse us completely. It's called glorification. Never to sin nor battle with sin again. Do you desire that this morning? I desire that. Never to battle with sin again, and he will give us new glorified bodies in which we will dwell with him for eternity. Can you imagine what that will be like? Forever free from sin, a friend of Jesus, a son or daughter in the family of God? Jesus was our hope, he is our hope, and he will be our hope for eternity. What assurance for the child of God. Thomas Watson, a Puritan in his work, A Body of Divinity, says this about being a child of God, being adopted into God's family. See the amazing love of God in making us his sons. The wonder of God's love in adopting us appears in this, that God should adopt us when he had a son of his own. Men adopt because they want children and desire to have some to bear their name, but God adopted us when he had a son of his own, the Lord Jesus. We needed a father, but he did not need sons. To give us Christ is more than if God had given us all the world. He can make more worlds, but he has no more Christ to give. Because God has changed us on the inside, he has made us children of God, and the Spirit now lives in us. Therefore, what we do on the outside begins to change. It is most important to note that our status as children of God, which God has done for us in Jesus, precedes our actions as his children. To put it real simple, you got to be a child of God before you can do what a child of God can do. It can be no other way. This gives us the most assurance, not partial assurance. This gives us the most assurance because we remember that the only reason we are walking in the light, the only reason we are practicing righteousness, the only reason we are loving the brothers is because God has done a work in our heart and continues to work in our hearts. Where is your assurance? Is it in you and what you do or is it in Jesus and what Jesus has done for you. If it's in what you do, it's fleeting. If it's in Jesus and what he's done, it's forever. Where is your assurance? That's the shift the Apostle John makes in chapter 3. You don't find assurance in the work you do. You find assurance in what your work points back to. The summary that you're a child of God, so now that we know our status as children, we know we must look like him. Most naturally, we look like our father, the devil, but the power of the Holy Spirit, we, with the power of the Holy Spirit, we now increasingly look like our father. Increasingly looking like the father, hear me, church, is evidence you are your father's child. But how do we increasingly look like the father? That's the second thought we want to consider. Our actions as children. Our actions as children. 
Whoever you are a child of, you will inevitably look like your father. Children of God look like God. Children of the devil look like Cruella de Vil. That was my attempt at a Disney joke. You guys can see me after the service. Children of the devil look like the devil. But how do we know that how do we know what they look like? Okay, here we go. Because as the good Bible scholars that you are, you point to John 4:24, right? Which says God is spirit. You can't see a spirit, Caleb. How do you know what it looks like? And then you jump to Jesus' words in John 6:46. No one has ever seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus is talking about himself. Now we're getting somewhere. But don't stop. Let's keep going. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. In context here, we know that the apostle is writing about the eternal logos, the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, who was in the beginning, who was with God, who was God. Church, it goes without saying, but as we've seen before, we need to guard against such things. Jesus is God. What does the apostle say in 1 John 1? That which we have seen, which we've looked upon, we proclaim to you. Here, Colossians 1, 15 and 19. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Meditate on that in your quiet time. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. In the person of Christ, we can see God. Therefore, we know what we ought to look like. Church, we ought to look like Jesus. We ought to look like Jesus. Now, this resemblance doesn't come as we mature and our facial structure changes and we all start to look like Jesus. No, we look like Jesus as we imitate Jesus. That is by doing what Jesus did. There is, after all, no better example of how to live as a child of God than by watching the Son of God. So what do we do? How do we increasingly look like Jesus? Well, remember, our actions actually begin on the inside. They start in the heart. And church, we aren't just looking for behavioral modification. We're looking for heart change. The foundation of the matter is in verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. At this point, you can see what the apostle is doing. He's building two cases. Okay, two towers. Picture them as two towers. At the foundation here, child of God. At the foundation here, child of the devil. Child of God, boom, practices righteousness. Child of the devil, boom, practices sinning. Makes a habit of sinning. Here, child of God practices righteousness. They practice righteousness by loving one another. Child of the devil continues in sin, practicing sin by hating the brothers. A child of God shows his righteousness by loving his brother. A child of the devil shows his lawlessness because of his hatred for the brothers. So where does verse 3 fit in? Let's look at it this way. Verse 3 gives us a command. If you hope to be pure like Jesus when he returns, purify yourself now. And then the command comes with motivation. Jesus is pure. He is pure. So verse 4 through 10, that rest of that little section there, they give us the means, how we can actually purify ourselves. There's a command, there's a motivation, and there's a means. So let's look at the command. Purify yourselves as he is pure. We should hear this as a weighty command. And I would say, don't be quick to just shrug this off your back. Don't be quick to just shrug the weight of this off. Purify yourself as he is pure. The apostle does not have passivity in mind here. To purify yourself as he is pure means work. What does it mean that he is pure then? Well, verse 5. In him there is no sin. 
Jesus is holy. He is blameless. He is without spot or blemish. And if we wish to be like him, we must purify ourselves in the same way. That is our motivation, after all, to be pure in Christ when he returns. So that what we saw in chapter 2, verse 28, is true of us, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him at his coming. Why would we shrink? Because we live lives of sin. We didn't purify ourselves. We didn't heed the command to purge the sin in our hearts and imitate him right now. I don't know about you, but I don't want to shrink when Jesus comes back. And I don't want to shrink from him, especially because I was too preoccupied or too lazy or too stubborn or too stiff-necked to purify myself right now. Jesus is pure. We have to purify ourselves because we hope to be like him. And I hope to be like him. Being a child of God is not a passive affair. It requires action. In fact, if you're not acting as a child of God, can you say with confidence that you really are his child? What do you make a practice of? In other words, do you habitually practice righteousness? Or do you habitually make a practice of sinning? A child of God cannot habitually sin, meaning they, they just cannot continue in sin. Because verse 9 makes clear, no one born of God makes a practice, a habitual practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed abides in him and he cannot, he just cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. What does this all mean? Well, what this means is, yes, Christians do sin. We will be at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil until Christ returns. But what Christians do not do is continue unfazed in their sin. In fact, proof of the work of God in our hearts is the conviction that we feel from the Holy Spirit when we sin against God. Does that happen to you? When you sin against God and break his commands, do you feel convicted about it? When you say harsh words to your children or gossip about your neighbor or cut corners at work or lust with your eyes or covet your neighbor's things, do you feel convicted? But furthermore, does that conviction lead you to repentance? If you only feel convicted because you got caught, that's ungodly. Here, 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 7, verse 10, Paul says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas, hear me, worldly grief produces death. It's not, a it's not enough just to feel bad that you sinned against God and you got caught or you sinned against somebody else. That's not enough. That kind of grief leads to death. The godly grief we are looking for is one of conviction that leads to repentance. What is repentance? Turning away from your sin, trusting in the Lord Jesus, confessing your sins to him, and then practicing righteousness. There is a change of heart. Such is the life of a Christian. One of sin with conviction, then repentance and trust. And this cycle, okay, is actually the means, hear me, by which we are purifying ourselves because we want to obey God's commands. We want to practice righteousness. So when we do sin, because our desire to be pure as he is pure is so great, we repent and we turn anew to the Lord Jesus who takes away our sins. This is a wearisome task I'll admit, but hear me, weary saint, as you purify yourself, you will increasingly look more like Jesus. You will increasingly grow closer to him. Your heart will look more like his heart. 
Your desires will look more like his desires. Your actions will look more like Jesus' actions. As you purge the sin from your life, you purify yourself. You will be holier. You will be more righteous. This is a command for the child of God. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone. Let me import the verb. And strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You have to be holy to see God. Holy is a command. It is the expectation for the child of God. So let me ask you this, Christian, child of God, what is it in your life that is preventing you from pursuing a life of holiness? This could be a habitual sin that needs to be brought to light that you need to repent of. It could be a habit or a hobby that takes too much of your time. It takes all of your time, indeed, and you need to give more time, more of that time, to the Lord. It could be a lack of desire, which could, explain, could be explained by ignorance to the command, or it could say something else about you. It could be that you don't know Jesus. And hear me, when I say holiness, don't think monastery isolation, like the expectation is for all of us to go and be monks and do nothing. Think habitual, consistent, lifelong, practicing righteousness. Think you are more likely, in a given scenario, to obey God rather than to disobey God. And that is increasing over time. We can do this, church. Because God's seed is in us. And yes, life has seasons. So hear me. Some seasons are harder than others. Some seasons, friend, it feels like praying for five seconds before you go to bed is literally all that you have. And that's okay. The Lord is your Lord. The Spirit is in you. Some seasons are the opposite. You're on fire in the Word. And spending time with God is literally the utmost joy that you could have. Either one. Ask yourself this. Is the overall trajectory of your life looking holier or is it looking unholier? The child of God purifies themselves. We all should be getting holier as children of God. We talked about what it means to be pure, why we should be, how we can be pure, but the what what do we do to purify ourselves? We practice righteousness. And a practical way we practice righteousness is by loving the brothers. This closes out the apostles' main thrust in the beginning of chapter 3 all the way through verse 10. There's a little section right there. And it brings us to the second, the second section, the extended section, verses 11 through 24. This all should be grouped together in your Bible. So that leads us to our final idea to consider, our confidence as children. We should consider our confidence as children. We touched on the confidence we can have as children of God at the second coming of Christ. If we are purifying ourselves now, that was the first section. But in this second section, the confidence we have, the confidence that the apostle expresses mentioned in verse 21 it's not the same kind of confidence we have when we stand before judgment. That is more of an eternal, secure confidence. This kind of confidence is a confidence in prayer for today. Back at verse 11, the apostle introduced the idea of loving one another again. We've seen it before in chapter 2. But he introduces it again, this time with the intent on defining what that love is. He does so by contrasting love and hate, which is the exact opposite. And he gives us an example of hatred by using Cain's murder of his brother Abel. So now, side note, biblical theology is so cool, and this is one example. Okay, so if you started a Bible reading plan and you passed through Genesis 4, pass through is more of an Exodus pun. It doesn't go with Genesis. But Genesis 4, at first glance, you probably wouldn't understand why God accepted Abel's sacrifice and why he didn't accept Cain's. But here in the New Testament, 
John tells us why Cain's offering was unacceptable. It's because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, because you use your cross-references for Genesis 4 and it shows you 1 John 3.12, you understand the text better. Isn't that great, how the Bible works together and how the Bible explains itself? Side note over. John is making the point that hating your brother is equivalent to murder. And John isn't the first person that says this. Jesus said this first. Jesus said, if you hate your brother in your heart, you murdered him. So I'm sure John has his words in mind, but notice this transition. No murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He's building the case that if you don't love your brother, you actually prove yourself to be a child of the devil. And as we've already said, the devil's end is destruction. His way leads to death. But contrary to the devil's taking of life, God has shown us what real love looks like. Verse 16. Jesus laid down his own life. He did not take the life of his brother. He laid down his own life to save his brothers. John 15 verse 13 says this. Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The apostle repeats his Lord's words. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, before we make the mistake of assuming that this means a general willingness to die for another Christian, look at the immediate example. It's about providing for material needs. Not a willingness to die. A willingness, an ability to provide for material needs. It's almost like the apostle says, oh, you're willing to die for another Christian? Can you pay his light bill? He doesn't have a car right now. He's actually having a hard time. Do you think you could give him a ride to work every day until he gets another car? They are sick. They can't provide for themselves. Do you think you love them enough to make them a meal and go take it to your brother or sister in need? That's what John is saying. You say you're willing to love to the extreme, but are you willing to love practically? With your resources. It says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. So the idea is that the Christian brother or sister, they see the need. They recognize there is a need for another brother or sister in the church. They see it and they have. They possess the material needs to satisfy that need. And if those are true, yet they close their heart against that brother or sister, how does God's love abide in them? That's the argument. This culminates in the point John wishes to make in verse 18. Let us not love in word or in tongue, he says, but in deed and in truth. This can look material, providing for physical needs, and it should. We should provide for one another's needs. But let me input this. It can also look like sacrificing your time, your energy, your abilities, your efforts in other areas to love in deed and in truth. It is not less, but it is more. Now let me ask you, does this kind of sacrificial love characterize your life as a child of God? Not just being willing to love to the extreme, but being willing to love in the mundane, in the practical, when you see it. Are you content to see a brother or sister struggling and not reach out to help? Do you see someone in need in this church that you have the resources, the skills, the abilities, the time, the energy, the effort, but you are neglecting to do so? A passive love is no, is no love at all. A passive love looks like an active hate. As subtle as it might seem, this neglect can erode the love that we share together as children of God. It creates footholds for bitterness, for strife, and for anger. 
not providing for the needs of your brother or sister in Christ when you have the means to do so is as wicked as if you murdered them. But a word for those here this morning who see needs amongst your brothers and sisters and are tempted right now to close your heart. It's a real temptation that we face. It was happening here. It happens now. We're tempted to close our heart against our brothers and sisters in need. If that's you, let's look at verse 19 through 21. These verses are somewhat difficult to explain at face value, but a commentator gives us a concise statement. I want to just read that to you here. He says, John identifies those things that may cause our conscience to condemn us. When we refuse to love in action and in truth, God, who is greater than our hearts in kindness and generosity, motivates us to resist the hardness of heart that would refuse to show compassion to those who are in need. Furthermore, the fact that he knows everything reminds us that anything we feel here, any meanness of heart, he says, will not go unnoticed by an omnipotent God. If you feel the subtlety to neglect and to close your heart against someone, God knows. God knows what his people do and he judges them accordingly. His omniscience, he finalizes the quote, his omniscience strengthens and encourages us, but it also challenges us, for we know that he knows everything and will require an accounting of service done on his behalf. This connects it back to being pure. God knows the heart. This means we can't just play ignorant. If we see the need and in our heart we recognize the need we can't just say, oh, I didn't know. I, I was unaware that they needed that. God knows our hearts. And brothers or sisters, I, I think this is motivation because we can love like God. We've already seen we can sacrifice like the Lord who laid his life down. We can sacrifice material things that he's given to us in the first place. Our heart in the moment might push against generosity, but if we push through and do what is right anyway, God knows that too. God knows our hearts. A word for the brother or sister that sees material needs that they can't actually feel, fill. They desire to fill them, but they don't have the means to do so. Here's a word for you. Do not be disheartened. God knows your heart. He knows your desire to provide for these people, to provide for their needs. But God also knows that you can't provide for every single one. So what sacrifice for you in those moments most likely looks like is continued intercession on behalf of that brother or sister, praying that God, who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, would provide for their material needs. You may not be able to provide for those things, but you can pray to the God who can, and you can pray on their behalf. This kind of love, loving in deed and in truth, loving with material sacrifice, loving when you don't want to love, but you know the truth, that kind of love is evidence of your status as a child. And if God's omnipotence, his all-knowingness in this case, seems as a twisting of the arm to get you to just do something that you don't want to do, look at the final motivation in our text. If our heart does not condemn us, meaning we can honestly say in our hearts, we are lovingly sacrificial. We are taking advantage of the opportunities in the church around us to present to fulfill those, those needs. And when we are able, we are loving indeed and in truth. If this characterizes us in our hearts, our hearts aren't convicted or condemned before God because they've been closed to brothers and sisters, we can have confidence before God. What kind of confidence? Verse 22, that whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Do you pray with expectation that God hears your prayers and will answer them? I would argue Christians should pray like that. 
But if you aren't living a life of obedience or a life pleasing to God, you should not expect an answer to prayer because you're living a life of disobedience to your Lord, the one you say you are a child of. Think of this. Imagine after a day full of disobedience and outright defiance, your child comes to you and says, can we get ice cream? Maybe it's just me. But I would be reluctant to grant him his request because he's lived his entire day in complete disobedience and rejection of me. We ought not to live lives as children of God. That would lead to God's reluctance to answer. We ought to live lives of obedience that are pleasing. A child who is confident that God is their father lives like it. A child who lives like it can have confidence that their father hears them when they pray and will give them what they ask for according to his will, as we'll see next week in chapter 4. Church, to close our time, after everything we've considered, consider these final thoughts, three thoughts. Does the way you live reflect what you believe in your heart? If you say you're a child of God, can you honestly say you look like it? Second, if you can honestly say you look like a child of God, do you feel confident that the Lord hears your prayers and will answer them? If not, if you don't feel confident, why not? Maybe there is sin you need to confess to the Lord and be cleansed of because a Christian son or daughter can have confidence in their father. And thirdly, are you getting holier? Are you increasing in practicing righteousness? If not, again, why not? If it has never crossed your mind, maybe you should consider it moving forward. If you don't care, that probably answers the question itself. If you're concerned that you're not holy enough, just word of caution, be careful. Because that can teeter towards legalism, and legalism is not the gospel. That is not what Christ calls us to. We obey because we love. We love because he first loved us. We look like our Father. What a joy to look like our Father. Let's pray.